Um, it's sort of nice to be back on our bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) It is. (laughs) Honestly, it's great. Today I was like, oh, this is so nice. I'm reading this book. We're going to talk about this book. And then it's just going to be a normal episode. And I'm really happy that we're back. Me too. And I'm really happy that we read this book because I had forgotten how much I loved this book when I first read it. Agreed. But it is first person present. I I have some feelings about it, Sarah. (laughs) You know what, though? Okay, let's introduce ourselves. we should. Let's not get right in. Let's not dive right in. Before we start off with my bullshit. (laughs) It's, It's Thanksgiving week. How was your holiday? Wait, we need to introduce ourselves. Welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Prokop. On I am on task this morning in my romance reading and romance criticism ways. Very focused. I'm Sarah McLean, deeply unfocused. And um, I write romance novels. I read romance novels. And this week we're reading Sally Thorne's The Hating Game. We are, which was a beloved, a beloved romance, a hugely popular. A juggernaut. Yeah. A juggernaut of a romance. And when we sort of started this season, what feels like oh a thousand years ago. Because it, it was, obviously. Because <laughs> it was. Um, we, we said, you know, we were going to start, we were going to tackle sort of the modern, the modern romances that really have shaped the way romance looks right now in 2020. Yes. And I think that that's really, what's weird is over the last eight months, it feels like, strangely, like, the world feels like it's it's uh, standing still, but also, like, romance feels like there are sort of changes of fit. A fit? <laughs> changes of <Foot>. fit. <laughs> and so, uh, when, so that's really interesting, because at the beginning, The Hating Game was on our list from the beginning, because sure. I don't... Not, I think neither of us feel like you can really talk about romance right now over the yeah. last decade without name checking the hating game, right? Right. Um, but right now it really does feel like something is happening in contemporaries. I don't know quite what, but it sure is happening. Um, anyway, we'll get to that. How was Thanksgiving? It was very nice. You ordered your food from a professional chef. Uh, Whole Foods Market. It's it was is its name Chef Whole Foods. <laughs> Chef Whole Foods. And uh, you know what? It was delicious and it was fine. And it was just the three of us. And we had a really nice, quiet day. I have had all week off from work, so it's been really nice. It's delicious. Yeah. Well, uh, I cooked a meal, which is, as you know, one of my favorite things to do. Yes. And I've been writing because we have no family here, which. Yeah. Is of course sad, but also like, I mean, I I didn't realize that some people were so relaxed on holidays. Yeah, like, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I would do this again. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, you know, for us, it. I mean, it's sad, and I I missed my family was together in Ohio, but um, this is my son's probably last year at home because he goes away to college. I mean, you know, like. Of, Hopefully, I hope he'll be home right. at Thanksgiving. That's it. You, they never come back. Sure, obviously. That. But it did feel like a kind of a gift to just have that time with him. To have the right. So it's been. It was really nice. I miss my family, but it's like a treat. Yeah, in a weird way. Even though at the like when we first started talking about it, Eric was pretty adamant that 
we should tr- try and figure out a way to, you know, for us all to quarantine and see each other and test and sort of be really safe because it would be something different. But I think it was something different anyway. It was just a little bit of a lazy day. Um, anyway, here we are. So we hope that you all had a great holiday. And it is December now. It is. We're almost there. Yes. We almost we survived it. I know. I know, right? <laughs> and we are reading a rom-com. You want to talk we about sure? rom-coms? Should we start there? Maybe we should. I think that's right. a, a good idea. So Sally Thorne, delightful, wonderful Sally Thorne, who is an Australian uh, romance novelist who came up through fanfic along with Christina Lauren and many of our other favorites, um, wrote this rom-com. And I would say this is, in fact, a rom-com. It's funny and romantic. And um, and when she put this out, it was the first time. I mean, like, I remember seeing this cover, this cartoony cover, and thinking, oh, my God, like, this is game-changing. Like, something is going to happen now. Well, and I think we've seen that, it, you know, right, to be the case. So this was 2016, and I think we see the long tail of this kind of packaging and marketing and plotting the narration. I mean, I think that there's a lot of ways in which reading this for me was really interesting because I felt like I was really um, like, oh, that's where a lot of this is coming from. Now, here's the other thing I'll admit, though. I did not read this I didn't read this right away. I read this, like, probably years after it came out. Wow, really? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, no, I read it in in ARC form. I read it early. I put it in the Washington Post column. And I really felt like, at the time, there was, you know— there there weren't that many books like this, which is hard to kind of, like, wrap your head around. There was Christina Lauren— who were, like, the best at it. And really, they were, like, alone at the top. Mm -hmm. There was lots and lots of of contemporary romance, um, small towns, you know, really modern romance was, meaning romance set in a very modern way that felt Mm -hmm. very modern. Mm Mm-hmm. But they were all, like, in mass market paperback, like, with the, you know, handsome couple on the cover. And um, Christina Lauren's books had sort of – were just kind of turning a corner and having these kind of different styled – differently styled covers. Um, But like I said, this – the Hating Game cover with the two cartoon figures and the, like, hand-lettered stuff – um, was really cool. And it was, it's funny because now I think we're all so tired. Like, it feels like every, look, there are a lot of reasons why these cartoon covers exist and why they work, I think, for readers. And we should talk a little bit about that. But you can't get away from the fact, and there's sort of an irony to it because I write historicals, right? Like, you want to talk about a a group of of books that look the same. Like, you really can't get more samey than the historical, right? 
But I want to talk about covers. I think this is the right episode for us to talk about covers in. Um, because I feel like the thing about these covers is just like a historical with a lady in a giant dress on the cover telegraphs a thing to a reader. For me, this this cover, this The Hating Game cover, when it first came out, it telegraphed the thing. And that thing was, holy shit, somebody has written Bridget Jones again as a reader. And I'm like, we're talking about when I, Bridget Jones came out when I was in high school and it was the best. Like I remember reading, I haven't read Caveat, everyone. I haven't reread Bridget Jones. I've watched the movie many, 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 many times. I have not reread the book. Um, so I don't know if it holds up. I don't, I don't know anything about it, but I remember reading that book in high school and thinking like, oh my God, this is the book. Like, I want to be Bridget. I want to live this, like, this life. I want to be this person. And suddenly, like, the hating game came, you know, rioting into romance. Right. And it felt transformational. I mean, so I just looked it up. I read this. I'm like, sorry, Sally. I bought it on Book Outlet because it was like a couple bucks. And I had not read it. And I actually didn't read this book until late December of 2017. So I was a whole year plus after kind of everyone else read it. And it wasn't necessarily that I, I, you know, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't, I think I just started reviewing at that point maybe. Or it had, and was kind of like, well, I guess I should read this thing that everybody's reading, right? Like it was not, and I, you know, I liked it. It was. But everybody was talking about it. Everybody was talking about it. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, what we have been looking for for this season is kind of like. Right. And all the bo- the books that we have planned for the seasons are not always books that everybody is talking about, but it's not, a lot of them will be. Um, but everybody talked about this because it felt like something was happening and something did happen. I mean, we cannot deny the impact of this book. On the Absolutely. Genre. Absolutely. Um, and so I want to talk about that. And then I also want to talk about the fact that it was this book because right. there is so much, it's such a deliciously tropey kind of book that kind of knows what it wants to do. Well, and that it does it very, very well. And I think that's what I want to talk about, which is like, we in tech sort of, sort of talked about like like listing some of the things we want to talk about. And I think a really big one is that like unpacking the difference between like enemies to lovers and rivals to lovers. Mm-hmm. Right. We've got single person, you know, heroine only point of view. We have first person present. We I mean, there's a lot going on here that I think um, gets I mean, you know, as in, like, romance is a genre, like, we want, you know, books, we want books that sell people, right? So, of course, people Mm -hmm. are going to try and mimic and mine some of, like, what's going on here. Mm -hmm. But this book does a lot of things very, very well and walks a real tightrope, in particular, I think, with Lucy as a character. Uh Uh-huh. That I think she makes it look very something she makes something very difficult look very very easy oh my gosh it's the on this read i 
I have not read this book since I read this book for the first time. Right. right. And so on this read, and I think partially because now we do the podcast and whatever, I'm four years older as a writer. So now when I read things, I'm thinking about very different things, right? And there is the humor that is in this book. If you had asked me last week, like, what is, what's the humor in The Hating Game? I would have told you it was situational. And... And it's not. No, like, I don't think so at all. No, yeah. this is the thing. It's like, in my, in my head, this is a very funny book. And it is, like, really rom-com-y. Rom, no. Commie. <laughs> it, is, it is real rom-com-y. And, like, when you think about the rom-com, you think about situational humor. You think about the way it works in movies. Yes. Right? That but is not what this yeah. is. This book is a character. It's character humor. The humor is almost exclusively Lucy. She's a delightful character who, like, you kind of want to hang out with. And you're so instantly, and I kept thinking back on the Christina Lauren conversation that we had around fanfic and how, like, so much of fanfic, fan service in fanfic is about making sure that is giving the readers, the fans, the opportunity to really like get so to soak in the experiences of these characters. Right. So it, at one point today I texted you and I was like, this book is so much longer than I remember. Yeah. Right. Well, and I had texted you when I started and said, if you had asked me when they kissed in the elevator, I would have said the begin like the end of chapter one right away. That's how it starts. Yeah, it was seventy five pages in. Yeah, and I, I mean, I had completely great- forgotten the back end of this book, the third act, because yeah. I thought it ended after the paintball fight. The paintball mm-hmm. fight is like halfway, halfway. Yeah, that's like the end of Act Two, right? It's so funny that you yeah. have these. I have these memories of this book, be but. But the reason why is because Sally packs in these yeah. amazing scenes of these two just, like, talking. Yes. It's such a talky book. Yeah, that's the it, – so that's it. Like, right, where the humor in this book is based in dialogue, it's based in the way Lucy thinks about the world and herself. It's about her observational rather than situational. Yeah. Right? It, and There's so nothing situational. Not no. even paintball, which is what I remembered, right? Like, so right. I was like, oh, there's that paintball scene. So that it's situational humor. Except that's not funny, that scene. No, no, not It's at all. romantic and, like, kind of weird. Yeah. And then it leads into a sickbed scene that has to be, like, oh, yeah, on everyone's favorite, list. Sure. Kate, yeah, Kate Claiborne has got to have that on, like, lock, that sickbed scene. So let's do a really quick <clears throat> plot summary. Oh, yeah, I forgot we did Only that. Only because... I think it might be useful. Because everyone else should remember the plot, too. Sure. Lucy Hutton is our heroine, and she is, um, works with her arch nemesis, right? Joshua Templeman. One of my favorite, I don't know, do you ever, you were a Buffy fan, right? Yeah, of course. You remember the part where, um, there's those, like, three bad guys, and they're talking about Buffy, and they're, I think it's, like, right, and and She's like, they're my arch, it's my arch nemesis. Like, <laughs> right? Anyway, um, 
they worked together at essentially a publishing house that was two different houses that had been merged together. And in this merge, there's still kind of two CEOs and they are the assistant to each one. And, um, you know, it has been a really rocky and rough transition. And so they like sit in this office and glare at each other and it's all, you know, like kind of stark and mirrored and cold and, um, Lucy is convinced that Josh is essentially her mortal enemy. Well, yeah. I mean, page and, four. Yeah. I mean, just the introduction alone of this book is really a great – it's a great lesson in how to start a book. Yeah. Um, especially because, again, you know, the, the the lesson that writers get taught all the time is, like, you have to start with action. Right? right, like he's starting with action, puts the characters on the page, like gets the readers invested in the story. Like you think about Susan Elizabeth Phillips starting with, you know, the the beaver right. costume on the on the side of the road, or like, um, you know, Beverly Jenkins starting Indigo with like the knock yes. on the floor underneath the chair from the Underground Railroad. Like something's happening. Sally starts this book and it's so internal. It's like yes. you are steeped in Lucy. And on page four, she says, the second, the most essential thing anyone needs to know about me is this. I hate Joshua Templeman. Like, yeah, it's on the page. And instantly you're like catnip, like trope, 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 like neon sign. Yes. It's going to be enemies to lovers. Strap in. I think one of the things that this book really does well uh, there are many, is it really doesn't flinch away at all from, like, enemies to lovers means these people are really fucking mean to each other. Down. Yeah. <laughs> right? And I think that there's a way in which enemies to lovers often in other books kind of largely happens off page. Like, uh -huh. we've been enemies, but boom, now we're not. And this book really commits to... um her dislike of him or her, con she, she's convinced she dislikes him, right? But that how many times she defaults into that behavior, even when she knows it's not quite right anymore. You know, everyone knows I hate present tense passionately. I think it's yeah. the right choice here. She wields it like a knife. Yeah. Lucy is doesn't understand something about herself. Yep. And as we read this book, we're understanding it with her. And she is surprised by things that are happening. And that's like the scene in the elevator literally, I think, needed to be in present tense. Her shock at like, what uh -huh. is happening? Yeah. Is, and, and so as much as I hate it as a general rule yeah. and still struggled sometimes with it, I'm not going to lie to you, it's the right choice for this story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Also, there are scenes in this book that only that would not work in past tense, period, like the sick scene. The sick scene has to be in present tense because she reveals so much about herself. Yes. That she would never tell you in past Other, tense. Right. Or remember, honestly. Right? Yeah. Right. So there's that. And then I think there's this really interesting piece of the puzzle that is like yeah, there were sev there are several moments where I thought to myself, "Oh, this would only work in third person mm -hmm. or in present." Right. But how many times have you and I talked about like it takes a remarkable writer to pull off some of this stuff, right? Yes, right. Like first person present works in Sally Thorne. It works in Christina Lauren. Like 
you have to be a star to pull it off. I think I I I don't I don't know that I think I'm like oh God, I fucking hates present tense so goddamn much everybody. Here's what I'll say. I don't I think it really suits a certain kind of story really yeah. well. Well, this is Lucy's story. Right. And it's and her not like hiding this from herself. Yeah. My problem is when people try and use present tense when the character knows something and just isn't telling the reader. Yes, I'm like, that exactly. doesn't make any goddamn sense. What the fuck are you doing? Exactly. Right? But, but she it, does but yeah. Here's the thing. She doesn't make any mistakes because in the hands of a lesser author, Josh would have been on the page, also in first person present. And the whole book hinges, the sort of conflict of the book hinges on what Josh knows, right? Yes. And so then you would have had a sort of messy situation, right? But she knew she could, she sort of instinctively knew I can't put Josh on the page. But also, this is why this book felt like revolutionary in many ways and like the return of chiclet in so much in so many ways because suddenly we were looking at a romance novel where the heroine's at the center of the story it is her story entirely except sally's eight she's she's created this character in josh who like we understand instinctively as romance readers right like there is no ha- at the the second she finds his planner and sees yes. the like hash marks, the hash marks. We're like, oh, he's deep into you. Yeah, well, right. And that's the thing that I think is, you know, and we've talked about this too. When you have a, a single character point of view, the the hardest thing to do is communicate that the other character has fallen in love with you or is in love with you just through that character's observations. And this is, I think, the real genius of this Mm -hmm. book, is there are times when Josh acts in a way that we as readers understand Uh means one thing, and Lucy does not understand what it means. And I think that this is part of, uh, you know, again, like the tightrope of, I I mean, this is really, I mean, I feel like if I was writing in present tense, I would be studying this book because it does a really masterful job of showing us that the other person is fallen in love without without us knowing what's in their brain. And that, um, I mean, I think my big problem with present tense is a lot of the time that doesn't work. Or, like I said, it's a mismatch for the kind of story you're going to tell. I mean, you know, there's a lot of... But I also would like to say along with this, my other kind of present tense issue is if every book that's written in present tense by an author sounds exactly the same, well, that doesn't make sense to me either because of the way pe- the voice in this book. And we don't talk about voice a whole uh, lot. Lucy is so clear. Yes. And, and that's unique. the other she's thing. Not, yes. She's not like other girls. <laughs> yeah, but I mean that in like a, in like a romance yes, way. She, like. She really can see this first person present character. Yes. And I think that's the other thing is as a default, people are just like, I'm just writing in present tense. And I'm like, okay, great. I get that it's really popular now and people like it and, you know, whatever. But like if every single character you write sounds the same, this is why I struggle. I'm like, okay, I read that book. You're the blurbs in present tense. I have zero memory of what happened. I don't even know these people's fucking names. Like, because they're just. There's no voice there. But, like, sometimes in those books, you don't even see, you don't know what they look like. You don't know what their names are. Like, we know Lucy's name from the start. We know, we know what Lucy looks like. Like, 
Because she's doing it so well. But she also, and I was really fascinated by this, introduces herself to she us. Does. For there's a I want to talk about this so badly. The yeah. start the start of this book is like kind of breaking the fourth wall. And this is a thing, Kate, you know, people joke like Kate and I joke all the time, like we fight about it sometimes on Twitter, but we talk about it all the time on texts. But, you know, this is like a really interesting thing because my biggest problem with present tense is I don't I don't narrate my life to myself as I'm doing it. Yeah. So I just as right. a as a like a way of understanding the world, it doesn't make sense to me. And I also highly resent being forced to make meaning about things as they're happening. So like these two things are really like it's big two strikes. I'm like, I don't walk around telling myself what I'm doing while I'm doing it. And I don't make meaning the minute things happen. This is fucking weird. Mm-hmm. But, but she's not doing that. Here's yeah, like it's clear from this narrative at the beginning that this is like a story she's telling. Yeah, she's like, "Hey Jen, let me tell you this story." Yeah, and I don't know how I feel about it, but fine. Oh, you don't know how you feel about it? Oh, I kind of love it. I love it because I think it immediately cleans the slate of all the problems that you have with first. That I mean, you can have with first per- you in the vague sense can have with first person present because she's saying like. We're in on the, you're in on my joke. Like we, I know, I know where we are, Laura. Okay, this is my brain, and I apologize, everybody. Yes. All right, I'm gonna try. This is real fucked up, everybody. I'm sorry. Okay, so a romance has the hea, right? We we as readers know it's going to turn out okay. So the thing about present tense is the characters don't know. They genuinely have no idea what's going to happen. Right? Like, that's the deal with present tense. Like, there's no future for them. They don't know uh, how so it's going to So you're be. saying because it's present tense, she can't let us in on the secret. Yes. Like, that just doesn't – it's like time travel is for some people. They're like, if I think about it too much, nothing makes sense. I'm like, wait. So at the beginning, she knows she's telling the story that actually has already happened. And yet the whole time we're reading it, she doesn't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> right? And again, I get that other people don't have the time – I'm going to call it the time travel problem because I think it's like the closest analogy. And some people are like, fuck it. Time travel is amazing. I don't care. Yeah. I might have that problem with a different book, but I do not have it with this one. Like fair. And that is one of those, and that is why I say all the time, like, I'm really interested when writers are trying something really different. And I think that, look, Sally Thorne did not invent first person present. She did not not invent, like, I'm not, she's not, she's not like, you know, rom-com Jesus. But she is doing a thing with this book that at the time felt really revolutionary for all the reasons. Look, here's the truth. It felt revolutionary also because it had a giant publisher behind it yeah. who said, we're going to put a stake in the ground and bring back Chiclet. Yeah. And I don't even remember if that's what we called it in 2016, but like, that's what yeah, this is. Like right. in, you know, 1997, when they were published, when Bridget Jones came out, that was called Chiclet, and we right. all read it. I mean, like, right. it was the thing everyone was reading. And then after Bridget Jones, there were all the copycats. Like, mm-hmm. um, The sure. Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing was one of my favorite ones. And, like, Jennifer yeah. Weiner wrote mm-hmm. all of, like, Good in Bed and all of right. those. And, like, everyone had these kind of great, solid, like, single woman against the world books. And then the market just dropped right out from under them. Harlequin started a line. So when I graduated college, I moved to New York and I I worked in publishing. I started working for a Mm -hmm. small 
boutique PR firm that handled um, kind of curious author, sometimes hard to handle authors. So like publishing houses would hire us to like handhold mm. authors who needed a lot of handholding. Interesting. But then also at the same time, like sometimes publisher, sometimes authors who like wanted a little more attention would come and hire us themselves. Um, and so, and it was, so it was 2000 and I started working with Harlequin for a, a line of books called Red Dress Inc. Do you remember okay. those books? No. Um, they were basically like Harlequin saw that there was a there was a big market for right. um, for chiclet. I mean, like yeah. for Bridget Jones readalikes. Like right. if you loved Bridget, then you will love all these other women. And um, they and the the line was called Red Dress Ink and. I worked on a handful of the Red Dress Ink books because my boss, by that point, had figured out that I was a romance reader and, like, threw right. me a bone and let, and let me work on them. And it lasted – I mean, I'll, I'll we'll look it up and put it in show notes, but, like, it lasted no length of time. It lasted yeah. a year, maybe. A, right. Like, maybe even less. And then the bottom dropped out of the market. So it probably lasted about four or five years, that, like, chiclet yeah. market. All the books looked the same. Right. All the books sounded the same. Sure. And like those of us, this is this is one of those situations, right? Like romance ebbs and flows. So for example, in the early early aughts in like 2001 or 2005, like paranormal was just at its height, height, height. And right. then like the bottom dropped out of paranormal and like suddenly houses weren't acquiring paranormals and yeah. paranormal readers were really stuck. Right? Yeah. Because it was like, well, you still get your Cressley or your Nalini or your, you know, Janine Frost. But, like, if you're looking for a new author to throw onto right. your list, like, that's a harder find. Right. So, um, and that's just the way the market, you know, it cycles. And so sometimes historical is up and, you know, sometimes sure. contemporary is up. And so um, I think that what happened was Chicklet just, like, traditional yeah. publishing houses got bored. I mean, I think – we're going to start seeing less and less of this kind of big swing, pendulum swing market forces because now, you know, indie publishing exists. And so. Right. Sure. There's always. There's no, yeah. if an editor gets bored of of the books in traditional, somebody in indie is still publishing them. Yeah. Right. Um, but that's real, right? Like we see that happen in YA and everybody oh, yeah. says like, well, whatever happened to vampires? Like what happened to vampires was people got bored. Yeah. In the offices in New yes. York. And then right. – um, and sometimes maybe readers too, right? But it's a little of both. So this book comes in, has this, like, cover that feels different than any other contemporary cover we'd seen in mm -hmm. a long time. And definitely different, different from Bridget Jones too. So, like, yeah. something really fresh and different. Had the marketing machine of William Mora behind it. I mean, mm -hmm. I assume, because yeah. it was everywhere. And right. it also added bonus, it was really well written. And yeah. so here we are. And it's, I think what is interesting about it is it's sort of the confluence of so many events. It's like, well, contemporary, small, like contemporary had to get a, got a facelift essentially mm -hmm. with these covers and like this first person present. And then there was kind of the influx of fanfic and this idea that like fanfic had power, which we were, which other houses were seeing too, because, you know, Christina Lauren had gotten their big, like, uh, 
beautiful series published, you know, right out of Twilight fanfic, right? So, like, publishers were starting to pay attention to these kind of outside forces. And I think everyone was really looking for, like, the book that would, like, land perfect. And Lucy's really charming. I think it spoke to a lot that was going on for all of us. Like, this was right before, uh, interestingly, Sally, our an Australian, spoke to America. And this book, we have no idea where this book is set. It That's really interesting it's to cool, me, too. It's cool, right? Yes. So I saw someone somewhere was like, oh, it's set in New York. And I'm like, it's not. It's definitely not set in New York. There's no identifying It's like location. generic city. Yes. And right. I think there's something kind of interesting about that, something that makes it work about like mm-hmm. kind of, again, I have kept thinking about what Christina and Lauren talked about where you can sort of like see yourself in the story. Like you can really put yourself down on the page. This is you and your job. And I remember the first time I ever read it, I was like, where is this book taken? Like, where does this take place? You can tell in the writing that she's not American. Yeah, there's a couple times it's, but it's generically enough that I feel like it could pass for American. It yeah. Can, I mean, right? Yeah. And so, um, so there's this real sense. So anyway, so Lucy and Josh are enemies and they play, but I want to talk about the games. Yeah. Because the other thing, there's something remarkable. And Jen, I don't know if you and I have talked about this recently, but I've been thinking a lot about this over the last couple of months. This kind of question that we're all asking in 2020 about contemporaries, like Mm. how do contemporaries land? You know, we're hearing anecdotally from readers that like they're more interested maybe in reading historicals or like paranormals and like because coronavirus is real and like we're in a pandemic and it's weird to think like, oh, they should be wearing masks, right? Well, there is – I put this on Twitter. There's a part in here where she's like we we are exchanging each other's breath. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh. Yeah. Please don't be safe, Too much. Right? Too much. <laughs> be safe. Make good choices. So, but at the same time, I think that the contemporaries that are working for me still are the ones that still have that real, like, fantasy element, that romance And this fantasy. one, right. Yeah. And these games, this one does. It feels like you're in a fantasy world, like you're in a in a hermetically sealed, like there's no yes. pandemic in this bubble at all. There's no other world, really. No. Yeah. And But what I love about it is that in part, it's because Lucy, so we're always in Lucy's point of view, and she talks about it. She said, and she describes all the games that she and yeah. Josh play, right? So there's the staring game where they sometimes right. like stare at each other mm-hmm. to see like who will blink first. Or like right. there's, they're playing, when we first meet her, they're playing the mirror game where like everything she does, he does like right. just an instant later. And because they share an office, they are both right. assistants to co CEOs of a right. publishing company that has merged. And then there's like the how, how you doing game mm-hmm. and the you right. know they have all these different games so the thing that was really fascinating for me about this though too is i was like well these are lucy's games though I and mean, does he play them right is he is, really playing them is he really playing them now clearly some of them right the mirror game clearly yes but but this is then, the magic of it yes and when because, she discovers his planner she's like he's playing a game i don't know about I need right? to understand his game. Yes. And then what's that called? The stalking Josh game or the like. Yes. Yeah. The stalking game. Right. <laughs> and so, no. And I, what I love about it 
is that, and then, well, it becomes, so at first you're like, it's her, these are her games and is he playing right. them? Right. And then as they get closer and closer and like the, the burn, you know, it's a very slow one, but like as the burn continues and they get closer and closer together, there are moments where like at one point they just acknowledge that like whenever yes. one of them s- says the word HR, Yes. That's the end of the game, right? That's their safe word. (laughs) Yes. That was amazing. I mean, it really was. And what I love about this is that this is not a thing that would happen in real life. Right. Absolutely not. And it is so romance reasony. Like, it just is. These two people are, they hate each other and they play these games. Yep. And they both know that they know the way the game, they know the rules of the games and they know when they're playing them and when they're not playing them for romance reasons. Yep. Absolutely. And as a reader, yeah. you're like, I am in. So the other thing I think that's like really masterful about this is, is the dialogue, right? And that if you have, okay, like I teach this thing to my kids about characterization, right? Like, so we don't have Josh's point of view. We don't have access to his thoughts and feelings. We only have access to his words, right? And we only have access to his behavior. And even then, I don't think she's actually a very good... The thing that's really fascinating about Lucy is she's clearly not a very... She doesn't really pay attention to his behavior in the way we do, right? right? So she reports things he does, and we know what they mean. And she, but then that she means can't that put it together, right? But we can. But then that means that dialogue is so important mm-hmm. because it is our only way to access him as a person. Yes, and their interactions are like, I mean, they're sparkling and they're sharp. And there's ways in which they communicate to each other and talk to each other that, like, and I think that's the part that, again, really works here is you're cutting us off from Josh in every single way. But here is this one way, and it is so fantastic. And I think that's the other thing that really works here is I think that Sally really understands, like, ultimately how much of Josh we need in order to keep buying this. Because the fact of the matter is their interactions are so tense and sometimes so terse (laughs) that it's, there has to be a payoff. Like there has to be an emotional payoff. Yes. And I think that that's one of the things that becomes really clear is, um, and I suggested at the beginning, we've already talked kind of a little bit about acts that this book seems long because there's three really well-defined acts. Distinct, yes. You know? So to me, they are the up to, like, the kiss in the elevator. Yep. Right? And then I'd say, like, act two is everything between that and then and when the they wedding. go to the wedding. And then the wedding is act three. And do you notice that during the acts, she opens the world in each act, mm-hmm. too? Yes. Which is so fast. Like, I was like, gosh, this is so perfectly crafted. Like, mm-hmm. the first hundred pages are just the two of them. Just the two of them. And then... And no, just in the office. And, like, and the way that the... I kept thinking about that Slate article that you tweeted. Um, the that The way that she articulates the design of their office mm-hmm. where everything is mirrored. So mm-hmm. it's the two of them and they can see their reflections yes. everywhere around right. them. <laughs> and, and her lipstick is flamethrower. Like it's like yeah. all right? It's perfect. And it's everything's perfect. like white 
and chrome and black, except for her shoes and her lipstick. And then there are these two doors that seem to be always closed, and that's where the, their bosses live or <laughs> work. And then the elevator. Yeah. It's like a it's like Thunderdome or a fishbowl or something, it's right? It's wild. So that's it. It's closed. Deeply claustrophobic right. in the first act. And then it opens up and we start to see them with workplace people. Mm-hmm. Literally an elevator to the new act, right? Yes. Yes. Like, let me transport you and a car ride to the third, right? Yeah. And then the third is his family. Right. Which right. is a really, I mean, like, that's a scene you have to love. I know you. that scene oh. is your catnip when she yells at the dad. I feel like, yeah, especially reading it Thanksgiving week, because it reminded me so perfectly of um, her Thanksgiving treat. Is that the name of it? Where the... Her naughty, isn't it her naughty holiday? Her naughty holiday. It's his Tiffany home, Rice. Yeah, right. Where there's a similar, like, sort of blow up at the Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, it's amazing. So, I mean, that's the thing. Like, this book is so clear. I mean, it's so well, wait, can good I also, at what it's doing. I'm going to mark the end of the third act where you were, where you did, but slightly later. So they're kissing in the elevator on the way down and she's going to a date that she told him she was going yes. on and then had to like collect a date to do which is adorable with a very really sweet is. man who's very sweet and wrong for her and she gets to the bar and he's he's like you know Josh drives her to the bar and whatever he doesn't think she's actually going on a date it's like a game of chicken and then she's like no I'm literally like I'm meeting this guy and he's like what um and so they and they get to the bar and she's left her coat in his car. So like she goes in, she meets this her date. They're like about to start and her date says you look beautiful and she's kind of wrecked by that. Like he's just, you know, Josh has just kissed her but he's never complimented her. He's oh they're always at each other's throats like what is happening there? And then like here's this nice boy who's like you look beautiful. That was my dog dropping a bone. At my feet. Um, And so then she's like, I have to, she kind of has to collect herself. So she goes to the bathroom and she's waiting in the hallway outside the bathrooms. And Josh comes in with her coat and finds her. And she's like emotional. And she's like, you broke me. Like, and he says, she says like, congratulations, you had a good day. Like you made me cry. And he says, is that the prize you think I'm playing for? And, like, I had chills because it's the first time Josh acknowledges that they're, they're playing games. Yes. Right. And then it's, like, the the door closes and we're in act two. I mean, there are some great moments in this book. I'm interested in the way in which... This is a book that's really about how hard it is to, like, change your own behavior even after you've changed your own mind. And I know I've, like, alluded to this before, but there's a lot of times, and I guess it's especially in that second act and for sure in the third act with Josh and the way he acts around his family, that we see that people are kind of like, I don't want to treat people this way anymore, but I am now in the habit of doing it and I don't know how to get out of it. And there's so many times, and I, and I felt that that something that this book does really well is it's so, 
human, right? And there's something that's fantasy-like about the setting and the way it is set up, but way more realistic about the way in which people sometimes shoot themselves in the fucking foot. Yes. Yes. Like, we see that they're perfect for each other at some point, and yet they keep screwing it up. And one of the things that's really interesting about that is that Josh deeply understands that that is, like, Lucy's M.O., And the whole second act where he's like, no, I'm not going to let you rush me into this and then freak out and take off. Like, I, I, you know, and I think the first time around, I was like, man, it's kind of controlling. But the second time around, it's really deeply where you're like, no, he just really knows her better than she knows herself. And that is a really fascinating, again, like, like narratively speaking, it's a fascinating setup the non-point-of-view character understands the point-of-view character better than she understands herself, and it's communicated to us as readers. Yes. Yes. What magic is that? And then on top of it, the layering of that, right, with the story about Josh's Easter egg, like about how, like, in his lifetime, all of the other people in his life, like, like, aimed for something, and when they got it, they just, like, wrecked it. And Josh, like, savored the 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 thing like once he got it he savored it and it was it was his alone and i mean he's a very good hero yeah like he is he's and i want to talk about him as a hero because knowing of course that sally came up through twilight fanfic knowing who else what other heroes came through twilight fanfic right it's hard not to compare this hero who is chrome and steel, like, with his perfectly clean house, to another hero who is chrome and steel and with a perfectly clean house, right? And I think that what's really fascinating is that what Sally has done is softened the alpha here, right? Where there is no question that Josh is really, like, distinct distinctly impenetrable at the beginning of this book. Like, he is exact. He's an old-school hero. It feels like those old-school books where, like, the heroine's just kind of, like, being heroiny all over the place. And the hero is, you can't see him. He's a cipher, right? And then a literal cipher. Like, I mean, he's literally got a code book, yes, right? Right, exactly. And so, and then... As she softens him, you start to really unpack all of the pain, the like harmful layers in there. Like he sees, he comes to understand his own difficulties as, you know, as somebody who has been built by obvious patriarchy, right? Like his dad is terrible. I will say, I I did find his dad. His dad was almost like a misstep to me. I didn't quite believe you found it. him. I was like, like too much. The whole part about where he was like he wouldn't pay my tuition. I was like bullshit. Come on. Like, you know my mom had to pay it. I that kind of felt like almost too over the top to me. I was like there is no way 
Because a man like that, I could see a man, like, I could see him shaming Josh for not going to medical school. Like, that kind of yeah. stuff was believable to me. But I that guess That line way- about, like, I've seen his, I've seen his email, sub, like, signature line, assistant to the CEO. Like, that yes. felt real. Like, that woof. was all, that all felt super real. Yeah. But some of it, and part of it was because a person like that is so tied up into how other people think that there's no way he would have refused to pay Josh's tuition because of how bad it would have made him look. Yeah. You know, well, like, two doctors don't play those games. Like, that That was, like, the one thing in the book where I literally, it felt like a kind of, like, clang. I was like, what was that? That didn't really make sense to me. Yeah. His disdain of Josh, of wanting, you know, sometimes, I I don't know, it went really hard in a way I think was too hard, but whatever. I think it's interesting because I, I did not, I did not have the same clang, but yeah. I did have a moment where I was like, does this ship turn around as fast as it seems like? He does with Lucy. But I sort of loved the idea that, like, maybe because nobody's ever talked to him this way. Yeah. Like, which is why this scene is always, I mean, this is your, this is your trope. This is your id here. Like, absolutely. You love it when a person goes to a family event and then absolutely shreds everyone on behalf of their love. Yes, absolutely. I did. And not, and I think that. The reason this is also so important is because I think one of the things that's really interesting about this book is, like, all this, like, what I'll call parody. And at the beginning, at at work, Josh is really seen as being, like, a bad guy, right? People are scared of him, and, you know, people are afraid to give him their reports if they're late. And he was the one who was responsible for cutting the jobs of 125 people, including our best friend. And so— at the end, for him to then be unable to, like, do that to his own father and have her be the one who stands up for him, I felt like that was a really important, like, countermeasure, right? Mm-hmm. Because we had to see him in a vulnerable way. And he was kind of master of the universe with her all along, right? The game he was playing was mm-hmm. bigger than the game she was playing, and we get that, and so does she at some point. But he he was never able to, like, play a game with his dad. So I do think it was really important. And also, I fucking loved it. And I love that Lucy had that moment of, like, you know, I mean, an audience of people cheering her on the way out from yeah, me, You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, okay, that's great. It and was awesome. It. it was yeah. awesome, and it worked great. And I love that the mom was like, Oh my god, I love her. Like yeah. I loved all, I loved a lot of it. Yeah. Um I the ending was really interesting because I had completely, I mean, full disclosure everyone, I had completely forgotten about this ending. I That's really so believed the ending was the paintball. <laughs> so and then like me, yeah. in my head if you had said to me what was this book, I would have said, "Oh, it's situational comedy because this is the book we call like this right. brought back the rom-com." Right, right. And this is maybe where we need to talk about the rom-com. And I would have said it ended with paintball uh, and the sickbed. Like, the sickbed moment was, like, where they realized that they were into each other. But none of that is true. That is (laughs) the middle, the flat middle of this book. Like, I would have, I remembered the wedding. What I had, and I, as soon as I came back to the wedding, I remembered that he had not told her the truth about the the bride. Yeah, Mandy. I was like, oh, Mindy. Right? Oh, shit, Mindy, right? Here's what I had forgotten. I had sort of, I knew that he had, like, another job lined up and hadn't told her about it. Mm. And in my brain, 
I was like, there. I really hate the way it ends with him like lording it over her that he is like solved this whole problem, and that's not how it plays out at all either. No, right? I had sort of where he he like admits it to her like in bed and it's fine and he's just like look i'm i left i resigned already and in my brain it had been more of a like ha ha and yeah it yeah it wasn't so that was really interesting the the tricks because it's so interior so internal i mean i right it's so as a writer like it's amazing when you read something that you just know you could not ever write and I like mean, i could not write this blog it's so internal well, it is a real masterclass in character growth and development. It's terrific. In voice. But I think that that's it. It's like, you know, the thing about the reason we remember these big external events is because so much of it is exactly. it's like internal stuff. Having coffee it. and like yes. leaving each other strawberries and donuts. I mean, if you wrote this out, like a, if someone had a plot wall, <laughs> right? I mean... No. There, I mean, and that's the thing. And, you know, I like plot. Don't get no, me wrong. But, but it's such a th- delicious. And, like, you don't get bored. You're not bored. No, not like, at all. You're just like, I want to see these two people together, which is c- sort of fascinating and also, like, proof that Sally doesn't misstep here because she never – she gives you exactly what you want, which is these right. two dummies together as much <laughs> as possible. Like yes. Well, that's the other thing, I think. There are right? so few moments where they're talking to someone else. And when they're talking, yeah. this does not pass the romance Bechdel test either. Like, no. there's not even a second, a second in this book is donated to anything that is not related to the other character. Absolutely. Oh, and that's, I think, again. That's why it's so fun to read. Yes. Because it's all right? fantasy. Like, yes. I and I really believe that that's where contemporaries are shining. Like this book yeah. felt even I might have enjoyed it even more reading it in 2020 after like during a pandemic pandemic. I definitely enjoyed it more because like yeah. it felt like oh this is a gift. It's like yeah. a gift to be reading something that is totally out of time. Yes. Yeah. I think the other thing for me is I think that there's a really interesting thing that happens in romance with like the low moment and like a redemption arc. And right. And I think that sometimes it feels for many readers like a little it's like fake. Oh, well, I got to 85 percent. And so now something bad is going to happen. And right. And I think that another reason that this book really succeeds is that it understands that like typical romance plotting or that arc wouldn't really play out successfully. Um, And I think it's because so much of the rest of the book is so internal that to sort of have that, like, now I'm going to stomp off and, you know, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Like there's a crisis at the end of this book. Um, But I mean, I would say for me, it was really interesting. Like the big crisis for me is was when she finds out he hasn't told her the truth about the bride. Yeah, because she feels like she's being used for something. Yeah, and when she says that, imagine the tables were turned, and if I, right, and if I had dragged you all around a family wedding and shown you off and hung all over you, and then you found out later that I, you know, the the groom was my ex, and I hadn't told you. Right. Like her ability to like put that in perspective for him. And then they do have this like big fight 
but they like work it out. Yeah, and it's I very think, real. Yes, and it do, it's not like I mean, there's a moment where she's like, "I'm going to get on a bus and go," where it could have turned into that. And it's Josh who's like, "Like, no, we're not going to do that, right? We're going to like talk this out." And my mom talked to you, and I'm going to talk to you, and we're going to do this thing. And I think that that's something that in a book that's so in. And again, we've talked about this, I know, but like a book that is so heavily determined, that's so internal, I think has to then be worked out internally. Like, does that make sense? And so the fight for that fight that they have afterwards, and then they have sex, right? Mm -hmm. Finally. (laughs) Finally, right? I know. I was really like, oh, God, this takes forever. I forgot about this. Um, Lots of making out, though. A lot of dry humping. And I'm fine with that. That's, like, really all I need. I, I felt the same way with Bet Me. I was like, it's like when nothing happens and all of a sudden they go from kissing to fucking at yes. 70% that I'm like, what happened? Um, but I think this part about, you know, it's really a moment where we see I have made so many mistakes. I've made so many assumptions about him. I've jumped to conclusions. And then here is the opportunity for that to happen again. And we turned back from it. That's, like, really satisfying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then I, they have I mean, to go back to the real world of their jobs. But that's that's all. At that point. No, that's. Right? It's uh, nothing. Now, well, and what's interesting is Sally ends the book when their jobs become fossils. Mm-hmm. Like, their yep. jobs are just, like, like, they their job is themselves for the yes. whole book. Yes. And then now they're there gonna go, go off and they're gonna be people who like have jobs yeah. and then are in love after work. And yes. and Sally's like, right, you don't want that. <laughs> no. Wait, you don't need any of those details. I mean, which right? is why so there's something to be said here for we haven't talked about like this whole book is cat versus cat too. Like yes. it's so rival it's rivals to lovers. Um, and because of that, you end up feeling really like and and she she does it so clearly too in the dialogue. It's like no one gets one over on the other unless mm-hmm. you know without there being an immediate response. Like there's right. the parry is very clear, uh-huh. um, and it's clever and funny. And you know she really doesn't use the safe. She doesn't. They don't say for it as much as you might. <laughs> think that they would like they you know at first hr is like part of the joke and then right you know it's so well done these two figures who are equally important to yeah the company to the relationship to you know the world they all they have this really wonderful they're exact equals um and i have to say like I read the Hating Game when I was um, when I was plotting Bare Knuckle Bastards, and like there was a reason why Hattie and Wit were were rivals to lovers, and it was because this book made it so clear to me that like cat versus cat is the most interesting way to tell this story, yeah. and it's you know one of my favorite tropes for for the reason that I think Sally. Sally did so did so much work teaching me how to write this. I think the brilliance of it is that I think a real dark path that people can turn down, a mistake that can get made, 
is if you root rivals to lovers and one person doesn't respect the other person's Mm -hmm. work or admire their talents, right? Right. Then you're like, well, now that person's just a jerk. Right. And the thing that's fascinating is it is clear from the beginning that their dislike of each other is about, like, demeanor, comportment, like, their way of doing the work, but not their ability to do the work itself. No. And I think that that's really important because, right? Well, she establishes that so well when she, right at the start, in that sort of first kind of breaking the fourth wall, like, kind of Mm -hmm. moment, she explains how this company came to be. Yes. And she's like, you know, there were, I forget what the name of the company is. and There were Bexleys and and whatevers. And, you know, and you could tell them apart. It was, it felt like you were reading a children's book. Like you could tell the Bexleys yes. because they yes. wore this kind of clothing and they did this kind of thing and they cared about books as units. And you could yes. tell the others because they were artsy, fartsy yep. and like wore flowing clothes and always had disheveled hair and they all wore glasses and they cared about art. Like, yep. and so you yes. have this kind of instant, she sets it down. She lays it down again and again and again as a kind of, these two are diametrically opposed. They they yeah. cannot work together. They cannot be together. They are enemies. Like and yeah. well and and so as a reader, you're like, okay, yeah, I see. Like, of course they are. They're the opposite of each other. Right. Right. And he is like cold in his way of dealing with people. Too methodical. Too driven by numbers. She's too much of a pushover. Right. But it's never He's that tall. Like, she's short. Yes. Like they're so. I mean, every bit yeah. of it is their opposites. Right. But it's never that she thinks he is incompetent, and it's never that he thinks that either. And I no. feel like that that is really one of the things I think is really important. Is I have seen enemies to lovers where. Often the man, because it's, it ha- well, I mean, I guess maybe it's just really gendered or comes across as really gendered in that way. If he doesn't respect her work, forget no. it. Game over. Well, also in Rivals to Lovers, one of the biggest challenges is what happens at the end. Yes. Because they can't sure. both get the job. They can't, like, if he's, if one of them is going to leave the job, it has to be for a good reason. Like, you can't just be like, well, I want you to have it. I'm seeding the ground. Right. right. She handles it really well. And that part, because she's sick. And again, this was on the reread. I noticed it, right? Where he whispers to her, like, if there was a way I could solve it where it didn't have to be like this. And she's like, you know, completely drugged down. She's like, yes, fix it. Right? Yeah. And so then we get like, oh, okay. It kind of softens everything that comes after. Sure. I I feel like the one other, we talked about Josh's parents. We didn't talk about her parents. Yeah. I, I was really fascinated this time around by her fear or belief that her mother had like lost something by choosing the farm over choosing her journalism career. Yeah, I mean, I think her parents are really interesting because I, I, I think maybe for me there was that was maybe the one moment where I was like, well, we never really, you know, they, she has a FaceTime call with them, and that's really like the most we get of them. I, for me, like, I could have done without her, without them, but it was, I mean, it was fine. Like, I was happy that somebody loved this poor woman. Yeah, who, true, like, right. has no one. There, that is a really interesting piece. That also sort of evoked that kind of old school feel of, like, she really had no one. Right. Which sucks. Right. 
except for her boss. I hope in the movie they Pauline, yeah. they make that boss a little more present. I wonder if Sally Thorne with a couple books under her belt would have like cut some of that stuff out now. The parent stuff. Yeah, maybe. She didn't need it. I mean, like it was so perfectly crafted without it that it's almost like she put it in because she wanted she wanted her Lucy to have people who loved her. I wanted that, too. I did, too. Yeah. I mean, and also, well, the first look at Josh, at going back to what you said about, you know, she narrates what Josh is doing, and we understand what Josh is doing, but she doesn't. When he finds the blog at her family's strawberry yes. farm. And, and like, knows it better. And he knows that he knows the names of her parents. He's read every blog post. Like, he's seen all the pictures of her when she was children, a child. Yeah. And she thinks that he's doing it to, like, fuck with her. Right. And to be an asshole. And it's so clear that he's done it because he's obsessed with her. And so it's really nice. It is. It's nice. I like him as a hero. He's a great hero. I do too. I mean, and, you know, we talk so much about the books that, why the books that work, work. And I think in romance, often it boils down to, for a lot of readers, it's like a primal response to the hero. And this love story, like, it really works because he is such, they are such a good match. And he's so into her. Well, and I think there's a way in which once he takes care of her literally when she is sick overnight, we then understand all the ways in which he's taking care of her. Yeah, but like even before that, the the roses, when the roses turn up and she uh, thinks it's the other guy I and know. you're like, Lucy, you dummy. I know. It's obviously not Danny who sent those. <laughs> I know. Um, do you want to talk about covers? You want to talk about rom-coms? You want to talk about the the long tail of the hating game? What do you want to do? Here's what I guess I would say. I feel like when we talk about the long tail of the hating game, I feel like what we see is um, heroin only point of view. I mean, especially in this trade romance. Right. These romances often, and I mean now, format has really evolved over the last four years, which nobody listening is going to be surprised to hear. I mean, in 2016, mass market paperback was still, you know, being, that was still format at most houses, most romance houses. Now, most of the romance houses have given up mass market um, as a, as a, size of a book, and most of the books are now being printed in trade, Um, and many of them are being printed in trade with these covers. And um, I think that part of the reason why that is, I mean, I heard heard Cindy Huang, who is the editorial director, um, you know, uh, the head of the imprint at Berkeley um, Books, on a panel say that in part that was because they understood that YA readers were more likely to purchase books that looked like this than purchase a book that had, like, a couple kissing on the cover. And they, like, she was very clear that they were making a direct, they were directly heading for the YA readership to, like, come over to older fiction, Um, which I think is, Real, I think also you can't have this cover, this conversation without having, without talking about the fact that there is a massive dearth of diverse 
inclusive cover photos, stock photos specifically, um, in romance. So this makes it easier to represent diversity. I think the challenge with that, though, is that these books do not always, they are not always, like, as advertised. This has nothing to do with authors. No, of course not. And I think this is the real, the real challenge here is, like, you know, for most of us, we don't get cover consultation. We don't get to say, like, oh, I want my book to be out in trade or I want my book to be out in mass market. We don't get to, we don't get to decide. And in many, many cases, we don't even get to choose our publisher, right? It's like you dance with the one who brung you. Yeah, right. Right? So then what ends up happening is this all happens and readers get angry. And look, authors get angry too. Like, Oh, I would imagine. Yeah, and of I, course. And I think, honestly, edit- editors, like, I think, I think, Everybody would like to be able to to get books in the hands of readers. And that's the challenge, right? And it it's just so hard. It's such a hard, you know, it goes there's so many layers of this that include things like stores not being willing to stock mass market because the margins aren't good or um you know there's or Walmart or Target or saying, le- right? yeah. I mean let's talk about like years and years and years of stores not being willing to stock uh diverse romances or queer romances like because of right. some One some person some buyer somewhere said they didn't want them and so i think I think that what's happening is, like I said, it's growing pains. Also, you know, that the the industry is constantly, is really shifting now with, you know, everything's in competition. And so I think the, I mean, this is a thing that any author you talk to is thinking about all the time. Price point, trim size, cover, like what the cover looks like. Should we try illustrated? I mean, the number of texts that you have that I have with other writers, like having these conversations. And I think what I can say is that um, I can't see how the next couple of years don't like really shake everything up. Yeah, I agree, especially now with this Simon and Schuster, right? And yeah, for those of you listening who don't follow, you know, publishing news. <laughs> Every second of the day, why not? And also, you know, Penguin Random House just bought Simon & Schuster. You know, so that's it limit. It's just, it's one more door closing for a lot of us. That funnel just gets narrower. And I think that's the thing that's really hard for, I would say, as a, again, and I'm not even talking as a critic, now I'm just talking as a reader, Mm. is genre, you know, genre fiction is a promise. And if a, a book or a, a book or an author isn't fulfilling that promise, but the publisher is selling it as if it is. And that's bad for the author, too. Because readers are so smart. And this is the thing is, like, consumers are incredibly smart. And for a long time, romance and mystery and sci-fi, I mean, all of them, right? And I think this is happening across all the genres, this kind of, like, mm. real weird shift of, like, what publishers are doing with the books, But over the years, I mean, over the last 50 years, like, romance readers have learned to buy books like like they're a product, like they're soup or cereal. Like, they know what the label looks like and what they want. So I think, yeah, I think think the reality is, is that readers have learned real fast. 
Right. And you know what the thing, too, is we've talked about is romance readers generally read really fast, right? And if you're reading 200 books a year, how many of those can be $16 books? Yeah. But it's interesting because you can also, like, to, to sort of, like, pivot away from this conversation, which is a much bigger conversation about, like, a lot of things that, like, we we don't know the inner workings of, right? I It's funny because you look at indie romance and, like, the covers on indie romance and how indie moves so quickly that they're going through multiple rounds of new cover concepts, you yeah. know, in the course of a year. You know, you oh, see yeah. and titles. It's like, like, it's like, oh, well— you know, stepbrothers are big, so now everybody's writing a stepbrother book. Or, right. like, bullies are big, so everybody's doing that. Or, like, men, shirtless men are big. Well, shirtless men are always going to be big. Sure. Or, like, you know. Hockey players or yeah. right, whatever. Right. And so you're seeing the whole, um, you're seeing in indie this just kind of constant chasing of the market. So it's really fascinating because romance seems like it, that's, like, indie seems like it's behaving the way romance always did behave. In traditional, where it was like everybody's writing, oh, you're writing a vampire, then we're all going to start writing vampires, and then so it's just fast. It's a really, I think it's a fascinating genre. Obviously, or we wouldn't have a podcast, and um, we've now gotten really far away from the hating game. But she did. I mean, like it changed the game. Yeah, it did. Right, and I think you know, I I pulled this book off the shelf. And was like, oh, God, that's right. This book really started kind of a big movement in romance. And one in which I think played out not just in the way publishing worked and the kinds of books it put out and the kind of covers it put out, but in the kinds of stories people told, in the narrative choices that people made while telling them. I mean, I think that this is like a real. Yeah. Right. I think this book is terrific. I loved it. I loved rereading it. But I also think what happened after it is just as much as part of the story. But we don't know the ending of that story yet. We're still in it. So I just want to shout out um, Sally's other books. Uh, Sally's last book was called 99% Mine. Um, it's a, it, for those of you who like home renovation romance, that's that's that one for you. And she has a new book coming out called Second First Impressions that I have a galley of, but I haven't read. Um, and it's February, right? Yeah, it's coming out in the spring. And yeah, I guess February is not the spring, but yes, February. Um, and she lives in Australia. Um, so she was here on tour for 99% Mine, but I don't, but oh, well, I guess it's COVID. So she probably won't be here on tour until at right, least probably later, not. right? But I bet, I bet she'll do cool stuff online. I bet and, she will. You know, She's really yeah. fun. I did an event with her and Christina Lauren and Kennedy Ryan um, on Zoom a few weeks ago. We'll put that in show notes so you can watch. It's fun. Um, she's the best. This is Faded Mates. Uh, where where can... What, what were you going to say? Well, I would say <laughs> our next read-along oh, yeah. will be The Secret Diaries of Miss Miranda Cheever by Julia Quinn. Because everyone is talking about Bridgertons. Um, it's coming. Bridgertons, Julia, the uh, the the Shonda Rhimes. If you, if you live under a romance rock. <laughs> uh, we do not. Shonda Rhimes uh, it has acquired the rights to Julia Quinn's Bridgertons family. And the first season of her Netflix show drops Christmas Day. So if you are... Keeping safe and <laughs> hanging out at home instead of seeing family, 
that's your gift, your Christmas gift, your holiday that gift. That and Wonder Woman 1984. I don't know which way. I'm like, would spend a lot of time on the TV that day. Um, yeah, same. <laughs> and um, Eric was like, I would like a 4G TV for Christmas. And I said, okay, but surprise, the first thing we watch on it is going to be Bridgerton. <laughs> Um, anyway, so, but Aaron and Clayton over at Learning the Tropes are doing a full Bridgerton series reread. So we decided that we would do my favorite Julia Quinn book, which is uh, um, The Secret Diaries. Um, and you can read that. That'll drop in two weeks. You have two weeks to read it. Um, this week, tonight, tonight, Wednesday the 2nd, we are phone banking Georgia. Faded States is back. Um, or you can join us Saturday uh, at 3 p.m. Uh, to postcard party with us, which will be also yeah. fun. And we're going to record. And we're going yeah, to record Fate of Meets live. We haven't decided. It's going to be an interstitial. But we, haven't, we haven't decided the theme. Um, that noise you're hearing in the background of my thing, if you're hearing it, is my dog <laughs> chewing on a bone. <laughs> um, and yeah. Uh, okay, so the, the theme song is now going on on and on, I bet. Um, yeah. <laughs> our producer is Eric Mortensen. You can find us at fatedmates.net where you'll find transcripts and merch links. Great for the holidays. Don't forget, oh, uh, if you this week is the last week to order the Fate of Mates Best of 2020 pack from Old Town Books to get yep. it in time for the holiday. Um, I've heard from a few of you online. I heard from a husband who overheard. Oh, I can't tell. I can't. It's a secret. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. All right. We'll see you phone banking or we'll see you next week, everybody. Happy December. 